Our New Testament reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1. It's a kind of a patchwork of verses, verses 1 through 3, verses 9 through 11, and verses 14 and 15. Hear these words from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. As your word goes forth, may it accomplish what you have sent it out to do. Ignite faith in our hearts and draw us closer to you, we pray, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our sermon uh, this morning is a continuation of our series on the Lord's Prayer. In In the next few weeks, as my time as your pastor comes to an end, I wanted to leave Um, I wanted you all to leave with something. My hope is, my prayer is, that in the future, as we all pray the Lord's Prayer, and we do that every, every service here, typically we do that after the invocation at the beginning. Uh, You'll notice that we did not do that today. That was intentional. We'll do that after the sermon. But my hope and prayer is that as we pray the Lord's Prayer, each time we pray it in the future, what can often be a just repetitive thing that we recite without giving much thought to the words, my hope is that we are reminded of the truths that we've learned in these few weeks, that as we learn about the Lord's Prayer, that it would bring new meaning, new life to our prayers of the Lord's Prayer. I'm not expecting us to remember everything that's preached on, but my hope is that when we pray it, the truths will come back. Last week, we looked at the first, the first little line, our Father who is in heaven. We looked at how God is both our Father and our King. That's a paradox. You wouldn't think that God would be both Father and King, but He is. They both go together. And where those two things intersect, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is all-loving, we find a God who will grant all of our needs and will do so gladly. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, typically when we pray it, you know, we put uh, the first line together. We say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then we breathe. And we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we breathe, and then we kind of go on from there. And originally, I was planning on doing the hallowed be thy name section with, you know, our Father who is in heaven. And as I was studying, as I was preparing for it, 
I decided that it would be better, that it would be a better fit. Well, I didn't decide that it would be a better fit. I realized it would be a better fit to do that phrase with the section this week. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Each one of those three little phrases is really saying the same thing, just in a little bit of a different way. If I can translate that to the modern English, it would be something like, may your name and authority be recognized, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Imagine with me a perhaps medieval king of England, someone, you know, not like Queen Elizabeth II who has very little actual authority. In fact, if you ever watch The Crown on Netflix, I recommend it. Um, you'll realize that the queen as an individual has very little authority, uh, and it's the institution that has a lot of authority over her as an individual. But if you think like an old school king, medieval king, ancient king, that king has authority over his kingdom. Medieval king of England. He wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I want to go to war with France. Well, guess what they're doing that afternoon? They're going to war with France. He doesn't have to go to Congress and get an authorized use of military force, no declaration of war, no nothing. He just says, hey, we're going to war, done. His top generals say, you know, they, they start preparing for war. The king can wake up in the morning and say, hey, I have an enemy over here in this one city, you know, he just sends a letter to, you know, the, the magistrate of that district, and he says, hey, arrest this guy, and they just arrest him. No probable cause, right, no Fourth Amendment, you know, prohibitions on, you know, searches or seizures, none of that. He just says the word, and it's done. He's the king. He has absolute authority. Now imagine with me here. The king has an enemy in France that he wants arrested, and so he sends a letter to the magistrate in France. He says, hey, arrest this guy that I, you know, I'm, that I'm enemies with. The magistrate's going to read that letter, he's going to laugh, he's going to tear it up and throw it out. Why? Because it's not his kingdom, right? The king of England has authority in England, he doesn't have authority in France. The king of England wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I want to go to war, France, come to war with me. They're not going to listen to him because he doesn't have authority over them. A king's kingdom is where his will is done. Where the king's will stops being done, his kingdom ends there. The king's kingdom is wherever his name is hallowed, wherever his authority is respected. And I should note that the word name there really carries the idea of authority or reputation. We kind of use this today as we, as we talk. You know, someone's going to go make a name for themselves. That's, a, that's an expression that you've heard, make a name for yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if I'm going to go make a name for myself, it doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, come up with a new name to call myself. I'm going to go make a name for myself, and it's going to be Francis. You know, that's, that's not what it's talking about. It means I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, establish life, and I'm going to live for me. You know, I'm going to establish my own company, establish my own reputation. That's kind of the idea here. The name of a king is his authority. Where his name is hallowed is where his authority is recognized. The authority of the king of England is recognized in England. It's not recognized in France or anywhere else. It's only recognized where his kingdom is. You see, all of these petitions need to go together. The reason we pray the Lord's Prayer, the reason we really pray at all, 
is because God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of those things that once you you say, it's kind of obvious, right? If God's will were done here, there would be no need to pray. But the reason we pray is because we experience sickness and death. Because I struggle with sin, I pray that God would deliver me from the sin. When loved ones struggle with health issues, we pray that God would deliver them from the health issues. Because things are not as they should be here, that is the entire reason that we pray. There was, of course, a time when God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven. That was in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was sort of like a temple where Adam and Eve could come in order to worship God. Heaven and earth were united there. God came down, walked with them. Heaven and earth had perfect fellowship together, but Adam and Eve sinned. They were cast out of the garden because of their sin. And ever since then, a veil has gone up between heaven and earth. There's been a separation there. God's will has not been done on earth as it is in heaven since that day. We are full of sin. This world is full of sinners, and things don't work like they are supposed to. But one day, our hope is that heaven and earth will be united. That's what Ephesians 1 says. It talks about Jesus Christ uniting everything in heaven and earth together underneath his headship. See, the work of Jesus Christ in the world is to unite heaven and earth. To put it in terms of the book of Revelation, the, um, you know, John who wrote the book says at the end that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Right? There's new heavens and a new earth. One day, heaven and earth will be united because of the work of Jesus Christ. One day, that will happen. It used to be that way back in the Garden of Eden. One day, God's will will finally again be done on earth as it is in heaven. But for now, it's not. We talked last week about how God is king we, we looked at uh, the text that the song we sang earlier, Holy, 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 is based on, right? Isaiah, the prophet, looking at God Almighty in his throne room, far above everything else, angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. We have visions of the throne room in Revelation with the elders around the throne casting their crowns in front of him. God's kingdom, God's authority is recognized in heaven, but here on earth, it's not. We long for the day when heaven comes down to earth, where heaven and earth are united, where God's will is finally done on earth as it is in heaven. We talked about paradoxes last week. I have three paradoxes today, if that's okay. None of them will take as long as last week's did, but three paradoxes nonetheless. The first is maybe something you've thought of uh, if, if, if it's not something you've thought of, it's something you've probably felt at least before. But the first paradox, two truths that are seemingly opposite, that both are, that both are true. First paradox, God is all-powerful, but his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. God is all-powerful, but his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Perhaps as you've, prayed the prayer, as you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, you've asked, why is God's will not done here, here, and now? Isn't he all-powerful? Can't he just do whatever he wants to? Can't he just come back and fix everything? But he doesn't. Why? Can't God just heal my loved ones? Can't he just come back now before they ever have to taste death? Yes, he can. Why doesn't he? That's a good question. The Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time dealing with this question, but it really lets us sit in the tension, longing for the day when all things will be made right, and they will be made right, but sometimes living in the in-between time when things are not as they should be. We see this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus gets word of his friend Lazarus getting ill to the point of death. And instead of coming immediately and healing his friend Lazarus, Jesus stays where he is, and he comes after Lazarus passes away. Lazarus' sister, Mary or Martha, I forget which one, I should know that, but I don't. One of his sisters says, Lord, if you had come here earlier, you could have healed him, and he wouldn't have had to die. It's true. But then we wouldn't have gotten to see Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So even though we might not know all the reasons why God doesn't do, you know, why God doesn't bring his kingdom right now, why God's will isn't done, we, we don't know that all the time. But we have hope and trust that God will work everything together for his glory and that one day everything will be made right. But even though God's kingdom has not come in full yet, we've seen it come in part. So even though God's kingdom is coming, God's kingdom is, it's started here and now. The first paradox was God is all-powerful, but his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. The second paradox is the kingdom is present, yet future. The kingdom is present, yet future. The, The scripture reading that we read immediately before this was from the book of Mark chapter 1, and through this chapter, I don't have time to preach an entire sermon, sermon on the book of, or on chapter 1 of Mark. Maybe, maybe I will sometime, but not today. This is full of themes about Jesus the King coming to take his throne. I want to walk through it just really quickly if we can. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word Christ there means king. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the king that they've been waiting for. The word gospel there is a word that we use a lot. But for for the ancient hearers of this, they would have heard something perhaps different than what we hear. So in the ancient Roman world, if you know your history, the first emperor of the Roman Empire was Caesar, Julius Caesar, one of the greatest men in history. After he passed away, there was a question about who would take over the throne. So there uh, there was a civil war between two guys, Octavius and Mark Anthony. This is not going to be on the test, so if you don't get this, it's fine, but... It's interesting background nonetheless. There's a civil war between two guys, Octavius, Mark, Anthony. Octavius won. You probably know him better as Caesar Augustus. That's a name that you've heard. And when he won a victory, when there was news about his kingship, a notice went throughout the land called Good News, a gospel according to Caesar Augustus, if you would. News about a new king and consolidated power. Because something's happened, everything is different. That's what's happening here. This is the good news about a king that is coming. 
When we hear about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River and the dove coming down on him and the voice coming out of heaven that says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's not just a statement about how a dad really loves his son. That's a statement about how God is blessing the king. When the dove comes down out of heaven, he's being anointed by God for his kingship, the throne that he will one day take. This is his anointing right here as the king. Verses 14 and 15, as we read them. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is going around, is there. He's here to start the kingdom. And sometimes we may wonder why the gospels are filled with all of this filler stuff. Do you ever think that? Maybe you don't say that out loud, but you think it quietly and internally, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus is a really important bit, and it's really important that we know that he was born, but there's a whole lot in there about miracles and about good teaching, and I guess, you know, it's important that we know that we love our neighbors as ourselves, but why is it important that we hear that Jesus calms the storm? Well, the fact is that everything in there points towards the kingship of Jesus. Jesus goes around forgiving sins. Jesus goes around healing people, raising people from the dead. Jesus goes around taming nature, taming the storms that that threaten God's peace. He brings about the kingdom in little ways throughout his ministry. And of course, we know that as he's crucified, right, Jesus is lifted up above his people in shame, yes, but lifted up above his people nonetheless. He's crowned with the crown of thorns, yes, but a crown nonetheless. He has has a sign above him that says, this is the king of the Jews. It's sarcastic, but it's true. In Christ's death and resurrection, he he inaugurates the kingdom of God. He starts it. So the kingdom of God is started. It's present, but it has yet to come in full. There's a paradox there. It's already here, but it has not yet come. We still wait for its full coming, but Jesus has started it by his ministry. He is the true king. Two paradoxes so far, one left. First one was, God is all-powerful, but his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. Second paradox is, the kingdom is present, but coming in the future. Third paradox, God brings about his kingdom now, in part, through human action. God brings about his kingdom now in part through human action. I know none of you came this morning to get a lesson on grammar. I don't think, anyway. Um, But you're going to get one, if that's okay. So if you go back to eighth grade or whatever it is, the, you know, first person is, first person words are I or me. Second person words are you or you all. Third person words are he, she, it. You know, people who you're not addressing, they, them. You know, first person, second person, third person. Normally, when we make commands or requests, it's in the second person. I need you to go do this. Will you please do this? And, you know, if we are, you know, in charge of someone... You know, if you're the boss of someone, you say, hey, I need you to call this company and confirm this detail, and you tell your subordinate to do it, and they just do it. But if you wanted to be polite, perhaps, or if you wanted to, maybe, maybe you don't care who does it as long as it gets done, you could say something like, make sure this gets done. 
or I would really appreciate it if this gets done. And you, it doesn't matter who does it in that case as long as, as long as it gets done. As long as that company is called and those details are confirmed, that's all that really matters. You may have noticed in the Lord's Prayer, at least for these three petitions, it could be written, God, hallow your name. God, bring your kingdom. God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you hear that? I slipped on that last little bit. We could say, God, make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we don't. We pray, God, may this happen. God, let this happen. And those are third-person passives. So the action, of the, the action of the sentence isn't in there. There's kind of an open question. Who brings about the kingdom? Is it God? Is it someone else? How does that work? That's done intentionally. God is at work in this world today bringing about his kingdom through us. Now, I don't, I don't mean that God is not bringing his kingdom in full one day through his action. I absolutely believe that's going to happen. But now, in part, God is at work through us and through what we do in order to bring, things, in order to bring his kingdom about. Earlier, we mentioned Ephesians 1, right? Jesus, as the head of the church, bringing all things in heaven and on earth together underneath his headship. That's all one Greek word, actually. Uh, If you're reading Ephesians 1, it's like a full sentence. That's just one word. He unites everything under his headship. But if you read the rest of Ephesians, the way he brings about his kingdom in this world is through his body. He is the head. We are the body working in the world to bring things about, to bring his kingdom about. You read the book of Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians is all about the things that separate out his kingdom from the ethics of the world. The Lord's Prayer is in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, which is all about the ethics of the kingdom. See, the kingdom plays by different rules. The world tells us to love ourselves first. Jesus is all about loving your neighbor as yourself, in fact, loving your enemies. The world tells us that we influence the world by by political power, by voting our party into office, or by taking over something with, with a military, but Jesus establishes his kingdom through suffering and death. His kingdom comes about. And his ethics are upside down from what we would expect. And we find that in this world, with the kingdom already established and the kingdom one day coming in full, that the place where we see God at work is here in the church. The church is a pocket of the new creation that's coming. The church is an embassy of the kingdom that is coming. There's been a lot in the news lately about embassies, and I don't want to get all political, um, but they've been in the news, and there's a reason that they've been in the news, and it's significant. Each country, or most countries, have embassies in a lot of other countries. Now, it's a place for uh, the ambassador to that country to, to live and to do business. It's a place for nationals of that country to come back and, you know, do, you know, get paperwork done and all those, all those things. You know, we have an embassy in Canada. Canada's embassies here. If you, if you are a diplomat and you're serving in a foreign country at an embassy, and you have a child who is born at that embassy, 
The child is not a citizen of whatever country you are, you know, whatever country you're going to. If the child is born at that embassy, the embassy is U.S. territory. It's a little chunk of the United States in the middle of whatever country it is that, it, that it's located in. It's underneath U.S. law. The child born there is a U.S. citizen. If there's a U.S. embassy in, say, Saudi Arabia, a country with radically different morals and laws and values from the United States, the embassy is governed not by Saudi Arabian law, but by United States law. It's a bit of one country in another. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of God here in the world. We are run by different rules. We live by different ethics. We are ambassadors of the kingdom here in the world. Instead of living by the ethics and the norms and the mores of the world, we live by kingdom ethics. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We come in on Sunday mornings and we experience God in a different way than what those who are outside of these walls experience him. I'm not here to you know, to bash those who haven't come to church or who weren't able to come to church this morning, but I'm convinced that those of you who are here this morning are experiencing God in a unique way that those who are at home cannot experience him in. There's something about the gathering of the church, experiencing the presence of God as the word is preached, as the scripture is read, as, as hymns are being sung that's different in here than out there, as we joyfully worship together. In the church, we, we just live life differently. Instead of proudly insisting that we're okay the way that we are, that we can deal with our sins on our own, that we can grow into Christian maturity by ourselves, we humbly grow together, working with each other to attain to the maturity of Christ. Instead of going home to our, going home to our houses and, and putting up our walls and, and keeping the gospel that we know to ourselves, we open our homes and our lives to those who are around us. We seek to show God's love to our neighbors by showing radical hospitality to them. Instead of hoarding our wealth and our time for ourselves, we generously serve people, our communities, with our time and our money. We live life differently in here than we do out there. God is at work in and through us in order to bring the kingdom, even as we wait for the kingdom to come in full. It's another paradox. God is all-powerful, but the kingdom hasn't come yet, but, but he's still at work. The kingdom is, is present. It's already been started, but it's, it's future. We're still waiting for it. The kingdom is brought about by God, but through human action, as we live life differently from others and come into this embassy of the kingdom of God. Concluding thoughts, I have two things, and, well, it's a paradox again. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to pray, is to acknowledge, first off, that we cannot fix the world, that we cannot remove our sin, that we cannot undo all the wrong in this world by ourselves. If we could, if I could get rid of my own sin, I would just do it, there's no need to pray about it. If I, can, if I can fix the injustice in the world by myself, there's no need to pray about it. But to pray, the Lord's Prayer is to acknowledge that only God can fix this world. 
To pray the Lord's Prayer also is to pray that God would change us in order to change the world. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer honestly and want to remain passive. The Lord's Prayer is not, not a prayer where we say, God, change the world, don't use me to do it, just I'll sit back and, and you do this. No, to pray the Lord's Prayer is to pray that God would work in and through us and by our actions influence the world for his glory. It's both of those things. It's to pray that only God can change the world, and it's to pray that God would change us and use us in order for that to happen. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, but it's a freeing prayer prayer to pray, to pray that God would cause his name to be revered, to pray that God would cause his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now, let us pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.